Hello and welcome to Keeping It Real, where we're going to dive into the mysterious world of plastic surgery. My name's Alex and each episode I'm sitting down with the respected surgeons Dr Richard Bloom and Dr Kim Taylor from Replastic Surgery and we're going to ask all the hard questions that you want the answers to. Moist and not coming in saying I want to look like Posh Spice or Pamela Anderson. And so it can be quite life-changing for them and um, we see improvements in their self-esteem, their confidence. If someone's had good work done, then no, I don't, I don't believe it is obvious. If you're having a breast augmentation, you know, you don't want to be going to the plastic surgeon who does road trauma. Quality is not always something that is easy to find in the plastic surgery world. In fact, with marketing today, it's actually very hard to judge whether you're getting a bargain or if you're taking a big risk. Dr Richard Bloom and Dr Kim Taylor are back this episode to talk about why risking it with the wrong surgeon could be a bad idea and how you can choose a good one. Well, welcome to another episode of Keeping It Real, Richard and Kim. Hi, Alex. Hi, Alex. The constant message that we have um, been sending through these podcasts is that quality is a very important aspect of the plastic surgery journey and that you do get what you pay for. Unfortunately, there are a lot of different types of doctors practicing in this area. How is this possible, Richard? It's a great question. And um, it seems like my entire career, there's been this battle to try and get the naming right so that people who are not surgeons can't call themselves surgeons. And it beats me why we haven't been able to win that battle because it seems like such an obvious thing to do. But essentially, if you have a medical degree in Australia that's a Bachelor of Medicine, Bachelor of Surgery, you are entitled to call yourself a surgeon. And it's historic why that is like that. It, it was around country GPs being able to do ingrown toenails and hernias and Obviously, all of that is now irrelevant because surgeon, there's hospitals and sur- surgeons all around the country, so there's no need for that really. And even if there was, there would be some way of allowing them to still do that without it then becoming a loophole for people who don't have qualifications to then call themselves surgeons. So if you're a family doctor, GP, you can call yourself a surgeon and you can do surgery. What you can't do is generally do surgery in a hospital. So what these practitioners do is set up their own facilities where they're the credentialing department. So they approve themselves to operate in their own facilities. They don't go through the same processes that the hospitals where we work in do, where they have to annually go through accreditation. They get by an independent body. They need to be checked, make sure everyone's got their the right qualifications, that the staff numbers are right, that the sterilization processes are right. It's a massive task. But you can set up a theatre. We can t- we could turn almost any room into an operating theatre and for the untrained, it would look like an operating theatre and you wouldn't know the difference. Mm. I mean, put an operating table and some lights in and a, and a machine that goes bing and it's going to look like a, a theatre. Yeah. But it's not a theatre. Is that kind of the, the red flag is... If it's a one-stop shop? Yeah. So if you go into someone's office and you say, well, where do you do the surgery? And they say, here, nine times out of 10, that is going to be not an accredited facility. Yep. It's amazing, actually, when I when we do consultations in the office, like so many times people say, oh, well, we have the surgery here afterwards. And we've got little procedure rooms in our office, which 
they don't look like an operating theatre, but they've got a decent light and a table that can move. Um, and there's there's no way we would do anything other than very minor procedures, minor touch-up, um, mm. removal of small lesions in there. Anything that requires anaesthetic support, we need to be in a proper hospital with all the correct equipment. And we don't administer any medication other than Panadol or local anaesthetic in the rooms, so that's not our skills or our expertise. So if someone needs any type of anaesthetic, we are not. That's not our job. We're not administering that. So we do probably more, probably ninety nine percent of our cases in theatre with patients under full anaesthetic as well. So mm. um, that's another bit of a red flag. That if someone's saying, "Oh, I can do your breast augmentation under local anaesthetic," it usually means that they don't have the support of an anaesthetist. So the practitioner is the one that may be administering some sedatives, and they're trying to do the procedure as well as mm. sort of anaesthetize the patient as well. And that's when you can run into safety and we were talking about quality before as well but safety is actually you know that such a high priority mm. and that's why we work with accredited anaesthetists where that's their role is to keep the patient anaesthetized and asleep and our role is to do the surgery so if the proceduralist um, may or may not be a surgeon but is then also purely doing all the local anaesthetic and the sedation as well then they can't focus on either job well. I don't think we've we have discussed around this topic in previous podcasts, but we've never named names about why the barrier. So I'm, I'm going to name names. So so one group is the ACCC. So the ACCC sees it as being anti-competitive if we don't let unqualified people do the surgery. But that's like saying a truck driver should be able to fly a plane. Mm. Okay, like, And saying, well, if you don't let the truck driver fly the plane, that's anti-competitive. I mean, yep. it's not fair to the truck driver. Mm. It's just such a... It's a can I say bullshit? Sure, it's, it's your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's just such a bullshit argument. Uh, the other groups are the GP groups, so the College of General Practitioners and the AMA, which is largely it's meant to represent all doctors, but it largely is a GP body. Yep. And they push back to try and protect the GPs who are doing procedures, and there's some validity in doing that, but it's allowing this massive loophole. And they should just say they should be all just saying to their members, listen. We need to close this loophole so that the greater good is served, and and, and the problem would be solved. I mean, it, it would it, it seriously should be taking about a minute to solve this, and it, it's it's been going around my entire career. Well, I know that there has been a lot of focus on this subject through different media outlets in recent times, and there is hundreds of women each year which are reporting serious problems with the operations that they're having, and the majority of the time it is an unqualified. Yeah, patients have, people have died. Patients have had cardiac arrests in day surgery centres where they've been overdosed on local anaesthetic is one of the most common things. Mm. And in Sydney, a couple of years ago, the lady died from having filler injected into her breasts under like totally, not even by a doctor, that was a beauty therapist. Mm. And, And so there are moves to regulate these sort of facilities, but there's always going to be... Like the real extreme like that, that someone's like, oh, yeah, this is an easy thing to do. We can just make a bit of money. And, and it's and it's monetarily driven, absolutely, because that, you know, why would you be doing something that you're not qualified to do? One thing that you constantly get told is 
shop around for a specialist if you've got knee problems or whatever, always go get a second opinion. Is that what happens in the plastic surgery world or should be happening? Yeah. Yeah, we would commonly see patients that are booked in for two or three consultations. Not uncommon to see someone that's seen someone else and maybe some little alarm bells. And that's, as I was saying in a previous podcast, the, the patient that I actually saw this morning who had been told for a breast reduction she could have liposuction. And um, her husband said to me that she nearly booked because it seemed, you know, it seemed like too good to be true kind mm. of thing. And they were like, mm, maybe we should just have a a second opinion and have a chat with someone else. And for sure, there with plastic surgery, there's not always going to – you see 10 different people and you're unlikely to get 10 different recommendations, but you might get two or three. And the, the approach may not always be the same, uh, but it should be relatively similar. And I personally, I don't have a problem if someone's seen me as their first consult and they sometimes will say, look, you know, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to go see someone else and then we'll make a decision of, uh, and I, I think that's perfectly reasonable. And the other thing about that is, yeah, if they're, if they're both plastic surgeons and they're both got qualifications and can give you the pros and cons of why, your approach would be one way or the other to do an operation. I, and I generally always try to explain this This is why I'm recommending what I am because in my hands I can't achieve X, Y, Z with what you want. And two, it's a, you know, a, a safety and it's all about expectations and what I can personally achieve. I, I know in my own hands with you know a given patient what kind of outcome I can get relatively predictably. Mm. And so if someone's seeing another practitioner, they're just like, yeah, yeah, sure, I can, I can do that. And mm. they, they can't sort of tailor any procedure to them. And the other thing is that not everyone's going to like you, and like we, you, n- none of us get. I on love that face, Richard. With- He's like, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> yeah, like, like no, whether the the patient doesn't like me, or whether we just get off on the wrong foot, or I don't think that we can get on the same page. Like, then both part, either party can say no, and and sometimes it, that's one of the hardest decisions and things to say is like you know I know I can't I'm not going to offer you an operation mm. but yeah it's it's never a, you walk in the door of someone and I'm going to have this operation because <laughs> it, it's a it, it's a two-way kind of thing and uh, our experience and to what we would recommend um, yeah exactly what Kim's saying absolutely is a two-way relationship and it's really important and an example just springs to mind I'm sure they're not listening because (laughs) I turned them down for (laughs) surgery but hopefully one day someone's listening to this podcast and COVID is a distant memory but for those of us who lived through it we went through a period where you had to stay 1.5 meters away from everybody and so when we started early this is a patient I'd actually seen as a video consultation and they wanted to come in and we do the 3D simulation. They wanted to have a 3D simulation. And as practitioners, we could stay open and we had rules and regulations in, in place to make sure that everyone was safe. Mm-hmm. Our patients were safe and our yep. staff were safe. And You were obeying the law. <laughs> we were. And anyway, so this couple came in and I'd seen them on, had a video consultation, all gone well. And then the husband started getting like really aggressive Mm. about why he was excluded from the photo room when his wife was having photos taken and that's being discriminatory and he was being aggressive to our staff and 
And then he, I missed all that. And then he, then he came into the room for when we were doing the discussion. And he said, "Why was I not allowed in here?" And like we're in the middle of a pandemic, like we've got safety rules. And he just kept on arguing about it. And I said, "Well, you would have had to have been here, and then our nurse would have been at risk." In the end, I just said, "You know what? This is not going to work. I can't be your doctor. I feel uncomfortable. I feel uncomfortable with how you're." treating me and how you've treated our staff I said we're done he said no 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 we will talk about this when we get home I said no it doesn't work that way <laughs> okay, like, no. I said like, I can't I can't uh, operate on you you don't have I can't to operate on your operate wife on yeah like yeah I mean as much as the, it's important for the patients to like their surgeon we also have to have a relationship with the patient and their family mm. How am I going to well, How am I going to make someone happy who won't obey the safe distancing <laughs> rules during a pandemic? And if you do offer it, and something does, you know, go wrong, or even yeah. not wrong, but it might be the impression that it's wrong, and how mm. do, how you can deal with that? And yeah, sometimes it's the beginning said, consult that, is not the hard the, part. The hard thing is to then say no when you're in that situation, but it's absolutely the safest and the right thing for us to us to do. It, it, and it was it was it was diff- I felt uncomfortable saying no, but I hundred percent think it was the right thing to do. Mm. Let's talk about cost. A lot of people use that as a yardstick in terms of, oh, it's expensive, it must be good quality, or they might go for a little bit of a bargain. When when it comes to price, is that actually a good indicator? Um, Probably not entirely. We're very open and disclose our prices, which are the maximum per procedure on our website. So at least patients have got a, an idea of where we're coming from. And you're never going to be able to cater for all markets. And I guess some people actually would only buy the most expensive champagne. So they want, if they're going to have plastic surgery, they want to buy, they want the most expensive person in town. Yeah. Whereas a, another cohort of people are going to be, like I buy the $5 from Aldi champagne. Yeah. Well, it's just as good. Um, yeah. And so they are 100% never going to compromise on someone that's sort of middle of the road or higher of the road. And, you know, certainly I don't think we're the most expensive in town. We're certainly not the cheapest. Mm. The cheapest, what appears to be the cheapest option often is, and, and patients often say, oh, my friends have told me I should go overseas for surgery. And so mm. there is... Less so, but still, uh, well, probably not right now at the moment in closed borders, COVID times. But prior to that, there was still a lot of patients that were going overseas for surgical holidays and in inverted commas um, mm. because surgery is not a holiday. It seems enticing. I can go and get my procedure and have a holiday at the same time. But you've, you've got to factor in travel, extra travel. What if something goes wrong? What if you get mm. there, you don't like the surgeon you've been allocated? What if the hospital doesn't look quite like it does in the brochures, like often mm. um, hotels sometimes do? So, yeah, like, sure, the price is somewhat important, but it's not the, the only thing. So I think if you like the you know if you like the approach of the surgeon you like the surgeon you like the outcomes mm. then that's something that's a workaround and I think you know I think in terms of our fees um, it, it's it's hard to set prices for things and but 
we we go on a journey with patients. So it's not just about an operation. It's mm. about um, all the steps beforehand um, and also many, many steps afterwards and long-term follow-up, um, a lot of things that we include um, after our surgery. So um, all of that, all of the follow-up appointments. Well, that's right. You guys don't scar- have a surprise. Yeah, scar management. It's going to cost you a little bit more. <laughs> laser, yeah. And it's all of that plus our experience Um the fact that we we work together as well, and so if I'm unavailable, then Richard is usually available. Um, we've got staff on site all the time, so they're they're full backup. And like it freaks me out when I hear other specialties, but also other um, patients be like, "Oh, I couldn't contact my doctor. I had to go to the public hospital. I had to go to emergency department." Mm. It's just kind of like you know we would take phone calls. Um, after hours, weekends, you know, don't love it, but that's, you know, if I do an operation, then, uh, you know, operated yesterday, my phone's on all night. Um, if the hospital rings, I am there and, you, you know, mm. that's our responsibility do, in doing that. And what about you, Richard, um, on the factor of prices and indicators? Yeah, I think touching on sort of the name of the, the episode, you get what you pay for. I don't think within plastic surgeons there's a massive range in terms of what the, the, the fee is. So I think sort of at the higher level where you're offering a similar service to what Kim and I are providing, whilst that doesn't guarantee that you're, you're going to get a great outcome necessarily, I think it's more revealing at the lower end. So mm. with the lower end, these cheaper operations – and I'm using not the word as in a surgery, but um, facilities, Mm. that is often a sign that they're not qualified. And the reason why they can do it cheaper is it's their own hospital. So we get charged if we're doing an operation on someone who is not insured or it's an an uninsured procedure, the hospital actually charges a fee to be in theatre and to be in a bed. The anaesthetist also charges a fee. And and so if you're not a surgeon and you're operating in your own facility, there's no hospital fee. Um, there's no, often maybe no an anaesthetic fee or it's a lower fee because it's not a qualified anaesthetist. Maybe there's less staff to look after you. And so the surgical fee might be the same as our surgical fee, but mm. they don't have this sort of other facilities around them, which is what makes the procedure safe and makes the journey safe. Mm. And, and so to a certain degree, you do get what you pay for. You go down these other pathways and it's in someone's office and you don't have these safety nets, which most of the time we don't need. Mm. But if you need it, you need it. And you don't want to suddenly be having to find a proper hospital or find an anaesthetist or find another specialist to, to help deal with some event that's occurred. I know that some of the listeners would be thinking that they they need surgery or or really want it or you know who knows where they are but they can't financially pay more there are ways for people to go on payment plans and things that if that is the case if they want a quality surgery but they may not be able to pay for it right now is that correct kim there are a number of options in terms of how uh, you know surgery can be paid for um, for us we uh, all the payments have to be made prior to having surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, and once someone's had a consultation, they can get given the details. And there's also details on our website in terms of the payment options that we have. Which um, are they, Kim? One of the common ways 
Patients can pay by cash, um, yep. credit card, direct deposit, or um, we have a relationship with Zip Pay and Zip Money, um, mm-hmm. where they have to be a prior approved, and it's a six months interest free after surgery. So if if someone wants to pay off in a longer period than that, then they will be charged interest above and beyond that. You Just know, to be clear, not, we're not endorsing them. We're not endorsing yeah. them. That is an option that we have. And there are other ways that people access money, like personal loans or extending their home loans. And it's, I guess, not, you know, it's a difficult conversation for us to have. And, like, we don't want people to be putting themselves at financial risk. And so they need to do their own research um, into that. One of the other more increasingly more common ways that patients can access some extra money is through super. So there is a um, ability to have a compassionate release of early release of super. Um, And generally that is used for the procedures that um, are are helping patients to have pain relief. So for for that to be accessible for procedures that we do, it has to be acute or chronic pain. So generally it's chronic pain, so pain that's been going on for quite some time. For example, um, breast reduction is a, is a pretty common one, but also mm. patients that have had significant weight loss where they've got a lot of excess skin and they're having problems with skin breakdown and wounds and chafing and uh, from the skin there. And and that is a process. There are forms that, uh, that we fill out and also the GP fills out and that goes to the ATO and um, again you know we're happy to do those forms but patients need to get independent advice really of whether that's the right thing for them to do Mm. um, because I'm far from a financial advisor (laughs) um, and uh, yeah short-term gain but potential long-term issues but yeah those are sort of the main options that are available. All right. Well, just in sum, in summing it all up, I guess what are the biggest messages that, it, well, the one message that you both have when it comes to choosing a surgeon? So I think, I mean, people talk about research, and it's it's a very loose term. I mean, what actually is it? So, just to sum it up, before you even step in the door of someone's office, you should look on the APRA website, which is the medical board that surgeon should be listed as a specialist plastic surgeon. And you can look in and see if they've had any warnings or any restrictions on their practice. So that that would be the number one thing. Going along with that, their qualifications should be that they're a fellow of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons. Um, So that's the basic surgical fellowship, and it it should be in plastic surgery, not in brain surgery or ENT, if you're going for breast surgery. Yeah. Obviously, okay if you're going for a no No surgery. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then, you know, we've got professional societies. So there's there's two main ones. There's uh, the Australian Society of Plastic Surgeons and the Australasian Society of Aesthetic Plastic Surgeons. So generally, people will be a member of of one or both of them. Um, And then the hospitals that people work at. So if people are working at some of the major hospitals that are all accredited, that's good. Okay, that's a really good sign. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I encourage people, and we've, we've had an episode on social media, but to look at, pe- at, at, at the surgeon's website, look at their Instagram page, look at their Facebook page, look at any videos that they might do, and tr- just get an idea whether it's, it's someone who seems genuine and someone who looks like they've got a body of work. Mm. So you can do all of that before you see them. Then once you're there, 
Yeah, I think it's really important to take note of how, how the uh, appointment process went, how you felt when you walk in the door. Is it is Are they nice officers? Is it clean? Were you kept waiting? Were the staff polite to you? Things like that. They're the one percenters. Okay, so if people on top of their game, if practices are on top of the game, all of those things are happening as well. It's not just about the surgery because you, these are the people you're going to be ringing if you need an urgent appointment or a follow-up appointment or things like that. And then how you got along with the surgeon during the consultation. Did they explain the operation? Did it make all make sense? Were you given information that you could look at afterwards? Were you shown before and after photos? Were you shown before and after photos of people who looked similar to you, similar starting point and a similar end point to where you where you ended up. And then I think, and we've touched on this as well, was there transparency in the quote, in, in the fees? Was, was it explained to you properly? Did it, did it include everything? Were there, were there omissions? Did it, like we've worked really hard to try and be able to give patients that information on the day of surgery. It's not always possible because sometimes hospitals uh, need to quote individually for s- specific procedures. But by and large, we can at your consultation, we are to give you a pretty comprehensive quote and all of our fees are on our website as well. So I, they're the sort of, they would be the, the checklist to go through for if you want to go through it. And as we talked before, like go and see someone else, compare and contrast. And it, we get a lot of feedback that our approach is very different to other people. And that will be good for some people. It, it maybe doesn't suit some people. And that's fine as well. All right. Well, I think that sums us up for today. And that's some great information for anyone that is looking for a surgeon for an upcoming change that they want to make. Thank you very much for joining me, Kim and Richard. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Alex. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Keeping It Real. To keep up with our next episodes, go and subscribe on Spotify or iTunes or wherever it is that you get your podcast. If you have further questions or want to take the next step, visit www.replasticsurgery.com.au or follow Re on social media. 